Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz. And I'm Al. First up, we'll be discussing parenthood and art. Is it possible to be a writer and a good parent? Or do you have to go down the route of Enid Blyton and write 10,000 best-selling words a day but lock your children in the nursery? And later, I'll be speaking to the comedian Deborah Francis-White, who is the host of the hit podcast, The Guilty Feminist. We spoke about self-confidence, about her time as a Jehovah's Witness, and about the issue of privilege. So, Grace, you were saying the other day how, um, since you've announced your engagement, lots of people are asking you about, you know, when, when's the baby due? A few, yeah, and I find it annoying, actually. <laughs> um, I think it's a... We should be clear that you're not pregnant. No, and it's a sort of strange thing where no one would ever ask you that personal a question if you weren't about to get married, but suddenly... I mean, I think it's a bit like being pregnant, some... Anyway, as soon as you're pregnant, according to friends of mine who have been, people feel that your bump is sort of public property and they can all touch it. <laughs> In the same way, when you get married, people want to ask you when you're about to have a baby. It has been a strange time because at the same time that people have been asking me this, some people anyway, there have been lots of books published about parenting and or parenthood and motherhood particularly. And these are not sort of like what to expect when you're expecting type books, but they're sort of quite highbrow, literary, sometimes fiction, memoir, non-fiction. But across the board, there have been these these kind of serious books published about motherhood. And you've been devouring them because you're just interested? Yeah, because I'm, I think it's interesting that suddenly something that's so, that is essential to life and that everyone has an experience of in some form or other is now getting a kind of literary treatment in a way that... Obviously, there, there have been writers who've written about motherhood, Sylvia Plath and, and people, but there's now been a sort of in the last six months an explosion of books about motherhood. Free Woman by Lara Feigl, which is a sort of biblio memoir about Doris Lessing and her relationship to Doris Lessing, who, quote, abandoned her children and what the implications of that are as a mother. There's a, one of the best books I've read is by Sheila Hetty. It's called Motherhood, but actually it's about the decision to have or not to have a child. There have been kind of serious non-fiction books about the sort of politics of being a mother. Uh, there's one called Mothers, an Essay in Love and Cruelty, which I think is a pretty great title. <laughs> there have been various short story collections. There's an amazing book called And Now We Have Everything by Megan O'Connell, which is a sort of very candid, warts and all depiction of, of very early motherhood. You know, for anyone who's interested in this stuff, and I think it's so, so not a niche concern, um, there's plenty to read. Absolutely. Which brings us to our guests today. We have Lara Feigl coming yeah. in, a literary critic and cultural historian at the English department at King's College London and the author, as you say, of Free Women. And we also have Isabel Berwick of the FT, who has written a lot about 
parenting for the for the FT. Particularly recently, when her daughter has just turned eighteen and is going to university, she's been revisiting that in columns about her obsession with sort of parenting books. Isabel, Lara, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Hello. So we'll start with the famous uh, Cyril Connolly quote, there is no more sombre enemy of good art than the pram in the hall. Lara, do you agree with that? I don't, but I think it's a complicated, it's a no but. I wrote my book having had one child and I've now had two, so I've got a slightly different perspective. And I had one within the structure of middle-class family life and the second one in quite a different structure and I think for me what made the first time hard was partly the expectations that surround parenting for middle-class families and that sort of having got out of that I realised that I had become more honest and open as a writer I suppose and this time haven't felt the same sense of constraint. And Isabel would you agree with that quote or is it problematic? No, I think it's a problem if you can't pay for childcare. So it's a luxury being creative or artistic when you have a small child. So the pram is in the hall because there isn't someone else to take care of the baby. Precisely. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Isn't it? Even if you have childcare, isn't there a, an emotional and physical burden that you know, from the moment that the child is conceived until they've grown up and 18 that regardless of childcare you're still weighed down in some way. You're absolutely right there is that that burden. In Sheila Hetty's book actually Motherhood which I've read recently you know she projects the child as a work of art in itself you know you're giving so much emotional energy to your child that there isn't anything left and I I think that's probably true when children are very small but I think that phase passes quite quickly I don't know what yeah I think that the kind of complete transformation of your mind that happens to the first child does really affect your sense of what space there is left and I for me it was both sort of more creative and less so I suppose I think there both times I found that in that sort of bubble of breastfeeding in which the the world is to some extent shut out, there's the potential for a very strong creative force. But at the same time, you're not on your own. In that sense, it's it's sort of one thing to pay someone else to look after your child, but your child really has to be out of mind as well as out of sight in order to escape into that place in which you can write for several hours and and lose a sense of of the external world. And I think that is a real challenge. Is there a positive side effect that that comes from a depth of experience, you know, particularly love, but also fear, that comes with a newborn baby, which, I mean, certainly I had never experienced before, and that that depth of experience could be used at a later, freer moment in, in one's life to create something artistic that's more profound than might have been without that experience. I mean, I, I like the, the part in Sheila Hetty's book where she says that there's a kind of danger that we... We, those of us with children sort of somehow assume that if we hadn't had children, we'd have carried on in our less sort of in our less profound selves and wouldn't have found other ways to gain depth. I think we gain depth as we get older in one way or another, and certainly having children is is one way to do so and provides its own material in that respect. And uh, but very very deep indelible material. Yeah, it? it's not just travelling to another country and you know growing in, a, in that sort of way. Is it? It's something which is, it steamrollers everything. Yes, 
But I sort of wouldn't want to say that people couldn't have equally deep. Um, well, I think there's a yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a complicated kind of hierarchy of experience that we've created over time, which sort of has parenting at the top. It's this kind of inarguable thing that you you know supposedly you can't have as fulfilled and as rich and as deep a life without having touched, sort of reached that pinnacle. And what Sheila Hetty in her book is saying is that an act of create, creation and nurture can be the same for sort of a work of art as, as for a child and that she she can have a richer life without one perhaps I don't think it's I agree but I don't think it's necessary I don't think it's a pinnacle I think it's a, like a it's a depth it's a sort of getting really really emotionally and physically dirty in something which I certainly had not experienced anything remotely comparable but I think Al for you and actually also for me my son almost died when he was a baby you know when you've had your child's been sick too you know when you have that terrible fear I think what it does is give you an anxiety that is quite specific to that experience and that's that has profoundly changed me as a person I wouldn't say that it's parenthood per se it was the fear of thinking my child was going to die Mm. and I have never been the same person since then and I don't think that's particularly creative but it does give me a a different outlook on life that has never left me so it's a shift in perspective yeah I would say I've had something of that shift of perspective I I, I can no longer watch the news without crying I mean that, that I think that happens to to most parents I suppose it's, it's something I'm wondering about at the moment. Like, is it is it profound to cry every time you watch the news? <laughs> it's also rather it sort of holds you back from doing anything about it in a way. Perhaps I'd be a kind of more act. I'd, I'd be more actively kind of intervening in in those news stories. Yes, I think that's certainly. true. I think that there is a, a selflessness that comes automatically <laughs> with you no longer being the most important person in your own life, but a complete selfishness beyond yeah. that person because you think, well. <laughs> I'm going to sort of that can take care of itself. Yeah. I've got this now. It's interesting that both you and Al mentioned that there was a kind of creative force as well as a f- you know not having any time and sleeplessness and these other things that come with having a young child. But you said that you felt quite creative at that time. Did that sort of express itself in wanting to write or make things or? Yeah, it did, because they sleep a lot at the beginning and there's a lot of time. I mean, you just also have a lot of time at home and thinking and they don't talk to you, so you have all these hours in which... Sleep a lot. uh, (laughs) Lucky you. (laughs) Yeah, I have very sleepy children. (laughs) They they, they both napped a lot and so I sort of sat beside them reading. I mean, I've read a lot and, yeah, have wanted to write and have written sort of fairly experimentally because you also, there's a kind of protection of the world thinking that you're not working and so there's a kind of freedom in that. And Al, you wrote a wonderful column a couple of months ago about Rufus and his condition and about the NHS. Do you think, was was there a kind of inspiration that came from from having a child that, do you think you wrote differently? Definitely. I mean, I was commissioned to write a funny column about something um, frivolous <laughs> and this was the only thing in my mind. I mean, it would have felt extremely false to suddenly write about, you know, the joys of watching cricket. Um, something like that. <laughs> it's my normal Which is fare. something you also feel. Um, just, but, yeah. you know, the, this is only one thing going on. It would have felt um, just disingenuous to, to have written about something else. Something that kind of unites this recent kind of crop of books is something about maternal ambivalence. It's a phrase that comes up a lot. Isabel, what does that, what does that mean to you, maternal ambivalence? I find this quite fascinating because... The author Rachel Cusk wrote a book, I think, in 2001. In fact, when my own daughter was very small and Rachel Cusk has children very much the same age as mine. And she was really hammered for having written a book called A Life's Work 
which brought back maternal ambivalence, which I think at that time was something quite unfashionable. You know, one didn't say that one was ambivalent about one's children. It was, it's quite odd. We, we'd sort of gone from a, a sort of radical honesty, actually, I think, in the 60s and 70s, and probably Lara can talk to this about, about Doris Essing and all that. You know, the, the women of that, that wave of feminism were very forthright about their ambivalence about their children. But when I first had, when I had my first child in 2000, there really was a, felt a real pressure for perfection. Mm. And what was really fashionable about that time was the Gina Ford book, about, you know, where, where you had a very strict timetable and you were in control of the baby, you carried on with your life. I wouldn't say it was a kind of maternal perfection, maybe, but it was more matter-of-factness. Isn't it maternal totalitarianism? Exactly. Messiness was not a thing. So I'm really pleased to see maternal ambivalence making a, a I comeback. Think, <laughs> I think Gina Ford coincided with Penelope Leach and there was, and that was in its way as kind of demanding the sense that your baby has to do, has complete control over you is kind of as bad as the idea that you have complete control over your baby. Um, They're extremes, yeah. aren't they? Yes. Felt like there wasn't sort of much of a middle ground at that point. You're um, right. It was, it was either co-sleeping or blackout blinds and feeding every four hours. Now... There's less of a sense that we're going to sort of shock by announcing that we have moments of rage or boredom with our children, but there's there's more of a sense that it's it's become a kind of important subject to explore. And I mean, I, I think one of the reviews of Sheila Hetty said that if men had children, this book would have been written a million times, a kind of philosophical exploration of what it means to give birth to another person. Something that you said when you sort of announced that you were writing a book about Doris Lessing and told your friends about it, that people's initial reaction was well didn't she leave her children and that you came to feel kind of defensive about that so there's still there's still a line that we draw about yeah. what motherhood is and the word abandonment I think is a really mm. provocative one that it's it's sort of it's, if I if I'm kind of leaving my daughter at nursery uh, sort of I might hear uh, you're abandoning your child it's a kind of word that's sort of behind us and, and the kind of act of leaving them forever is, is the real act of abandonment and she did it at a point when quite a lot of men we're doing that too, and it might not be used in quite the same way. I never, I think in, a, in any kind of act of biographical writing, you're engaged in a form of empathy where you have to think your way and feel your way into how someone felt at that moment in the way that if they were a character in a novel, you would. So it sort of didn't occur to me to judge her as such, but I certainly never felt it was a decision that I could see with that ambivalence as she could I mean as and she couldn't either I think there was a lot of guilt for her in it Mm. it wasn't a kind of straightforward I need to write therefore I'm going to leave my children which some people see it as it was much more about communism about a sense that the family was no longer the way forward a sense that she needed to free the world and that she'd be freeing her children who she loved in doing so and that her energies could be better spent with communism. She couldn't sort of set off as a single mother with two children within that context and felt it was best to leave them with their father. But it is nevertheless a kind of radical decision at the time yeah. and, and now. Yeah. Do you think that in 2018 there is still less stigma attached to paternal ambivalence um, compared to maternal ambivalence? Yes, without a doubt. Don't you? Yes, I do. Although the role of the father has, has changed. changed enormously. But it's the... given sort of heroic status. <laughs> I mean, the, the kind of we men talking, taking potentially yeah. the scene as freeing women from chains. And... Yes, and it's always, it's, it's women do do things, men help. But that's not how you feel. No, that's not remotely how I feel. But even though our relationship is as equal as we can make it, 
right now I'm in here discussing parenthood and art with you while my wife is in hospital with our baby with a cannula waiting for a blood transfusion. I think each family has their own way of doing things. I think quite a lot of men are doing a lot. I think the, the kind of question of ambivalence is just one where men don't have to defend it. We live in a kind of strange moment for mothers because, like you say, we can or one can admit to sort of finding young children boring. But then also Instagram and social media is totally saturated with these images of kind of maternal perfection and sort of total fulfilment through breastfeeding. Which have absolutely no bearing on reality. It's probably not like that at all. It seems like there's a kind of polarised set of messages. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I really do think that the kind of structures of middle class family life are as bad as they were when you were having children in that sense that in a way by getting, by, by sort of, father's doing more it, it somehow makes it's a new model of perfection in which you're all going to be even happier because you're all playing with your children all the time and you're all going to be posting pictures up of both of you watching the child learning to crawl or whatever and I, th- I think there's still not much room for kind of mess in that. The rise in what I would call performative parenting. You know, for example, you know, when I had my children, it was quite hard to breastfeed in cafes. There were cafes where you couldn't go to breastfeed. It was quite sh- frowned on. I would sit on park benches. Whereas now, you know, there are cafes where I don't go because they're absolutely bloody full of buggies. You know, but that that brings a pressure in itself because previously it was probably quite... It was quite easy to sit on the sofa and read a book on a Saturday afternoon while your partner looked after the kids and now I think there is a pressure for you all to be out in the park performing parenting posting on Instagram you know being outward actually I think Mm. the the inner life that we need actually maybe has suffered I I don't know what what do you think Al? I completely agree I mean there's nothing I like more than just just the three of us being at home and the the pressure to go and oh here's Rufus is um (laughs) I find it false and irritating (laughs) sort of people cooing over him and saying oh he's so handsome or whatever just seems to be missing the point why do you, why do you think that there is this great blossoming of books on this subject i think it on one level it's a, a certain generation of very accomplished writers getting to a certain age deborah levy rachel cusk jacqueline rose for example and for a younger set of writers it is perhaps the culmination of a, a much more public exploration of motherhood that we've been having for a few years now, uh, probably the last decade. I don't, I don't know if you w- would agree with that, Lara. Yeah, that seems true to me. I think I mean, Jessie Greengrass is another... Her, her novel, I thought, was, was great at coming at it from a completely new angle. I wonder if... I mean, so we're more honest about lots of things uh, now to do with kind of mental health, essentially, and is motherhood just one of these things that we can talk more openly now about things like postnatal depression in the way that we can about male mental health or childhood depression? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think motherhood used not to be thought a topic for intellectual debate. You know, many accomplished writers were not mothers and those who were perhaps was not a, a, a core part of what they were writing about. So, But it's interesting that even great fiction writers like Levy and Cusk have returned to their motherhood as a core part of something they will write about now, which I... I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Laura, but is that something we've had a lot in the past? So, I mean, so Cusk's novels, the trilogy, I think, have in a way have come out of the way she's been writing since since her life's work. I think she wrote those memoirs and, and then had a break and then this is is kind of what's come out of the transformation in her writing that was a, created by those memoirs. Levy's book is, is a memoir, uh, is a living autobiography and seems to 
come out of it, it seems to come from quite a separate place from her novels. Mm. I mean, I think it's quite hard to generalise, but I think I would just say that I agree that with mental health becoming an, a kind of more open area of discussion, areas like postnatal depression uh, can be talked about more easily. And I think at the same time, there's a sense that women's experience is no longer relegated to a special area called women's experience and that the kind of transformations of motherhood are worth exploring in an intellectual, unsentimental way. So in a way, it's part of the sort of latest wave of feminism as well and that we can talk about periods and we can talk about postnatal depression and just lots of sort of everyday things that happen to women. Yes, I think so. These are sort of up for discussion in a literary way. Yes, and in a way, I mean, I I think the current wave of feminism at its best is infused with ambivalence and this is one I, th- I think Rachel Cusk's right that the, the kind of there's a sort of coalescence of ambivalence in motherhood and in writing that comes together well. So I think perhaps it's always been the case that intellectual women have intellectualised their motherhood but it's just that the structures that have prevented these narratives from being published or being reviewed are now changing. You know, there's been a profound change in the people who are commissioning stuff at publishing houses and newspapers. It is part of that wider, Mm. uh, you know, restructuring of a fundamentally patriarchal publishing and media system. And also, when you haven't read about something, you're hungry to read about it. I mean, the Elena Ferrante books were gobbled down because, in a way, we hadn't had very many very candid portrayals of female friendship. And I think, similarly... I've sort of been re I feel like I've been reading about motherhood more than anything else over the last six months, partly because there hasn't been an awful lot to read about it. But I think friendship might be the next thing. Sally Rooney's novel, yeah. uh, Conversations with Friends, was a huge hit. And also in in a non fiction way, I do think there's a, a lot of room for exploration of female friendships. Sally um, Rooney was in here yesterday. Yep. She's our next <laughs> guest on the podcast, in fact. There we go. Bang on the site, guys. <laughs> Lara, Isabel, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank Thank you for having us. Our listeners uh, will know by now that you are a feminist. Are you a guilty feminist? Oh, Al, that's a difficult Mm. question. Actually, no, it's not a difficult question because I think probably most feminists are guilty feminists, which I think, well, Deborah herself will explain what that means, but I think it's just about reconciling being a feminist with sort of being a real-life woman and person living in the world. Or man. Um, I think I'm person. a guilty feminist. Yeah, I think, I, I'm sure you're a guilty feminist. And actually, I think lots of people are a guilty feminist. Her, her podcast has something like 50 million downloads, so people do identify with this idea of being a guilty feminist. She's just published a book off the back of the podcast and, uh, you know, does lots of live shows, international tours. She's a sort of big figure in, I guess, the most recent wave of feminism. She makes it fun and relatable to people who I'm sure probably w- wouldn't consider themselves feminists necessarily. And I'd say she's introduced me to lots of female comedians I didn't know. She's very into sort of sharing her platform with other women, notably women of colour and queer women, perhaps the kind of people who, you know, wouldn't always have... People without privileged access to those kinds of audiences uh, traditionally. Exactly, and she's using this massive audience that she has to give those people a platform. Great. Well, let's listen. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Grace. So what is a guilty feminist? Oh, I'm glad you've asked. So, well, I think that is something to do with the fact that 
I thought, oh gosh, if I start saying I'm a feminist but and admitting things. So we start the podcast with I'm a feminist but and we admit something true, like I'm mm-hmm. a feminist but. One time I went on a women's rights march and uh, I'd popped into a department store to use the loo and I got distracted trying out face cream and when I came out the march was gone. <laughs> and true story. And so we have to confess these things every week and I thought, gosh, the feminists are going to kick me out of the club. But so many women, yeah, yes, I do that. I'm, I'm trying to watch the four-hour documentary on BBC4 about the suffragettes but I actually end up flicking over to Love Island and I feel like I'm not a good enough feminist. I think we don't have to be perfect in inverted commas to make meaningful change. Women are trained to feel guilty. You're not a good enough mm-hmm. wife, you're yep. not good enough this, you're not a good enough that. And if you are being a good enough daughter, you're letting the side down at work, etc., etc. And I think feminism had become another thing to feel guilty about for a lot of women. A lot mm. of women were like, and now I'm That's not a good enough feminist. So I think guilty feminism is a place where we can just go, you don't have to be perfect to be a feminist. Something I'm interested in is whether women are less confident than men and why that might be. So I looked at the root of the word confidence, confidere, which means trust. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about confidence, like, oh, she's confident or he's confident, what we're really saying is that person trusts themselves. So they come in, they come out onto the stage to sing and they look confident, i.e. they trust that they're good at singing. Mm -hmm. Firstly, it's the ability to trust yourself. And I think because women are not constantly told, yeah, sure, go blag it, you're going to be fine. We sometimes are better at assessing what we are good at. But the second thing is the ability to signal your confidence in yourself to the room. Because sometimes we're taught to be demure. So Mm. you think, yeah, no, I've done this a million times. I'm really good at this. But you walk into the room like, oh, hello. And you speak up at the meeting. Mm. You've been trained socially to sit at the meeting and go, oh, um, yeah, I just had a thought. I don't know if it was worth mentioning. And then you've told the room, I don't know if my thought is worth mentioning and I've just thought of it. In fact, it's, some, it's an absolute fact that you know because you've been 25 years in the business and you're the most experienced person at the table, but you've got into this habit that you've been coaxed into by society of being demure and not being confrontational. And it's I, a kind of fear of appearing arrogant as well, I think. I mean, often huh. I find I know I know something and yet I undermine myself when I'm saying it by sounding like I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. The other thing that's really important to remember about that I talk about in the book that I don't think is identified very much, if ever, is tribal confidence. So it's the confidence the tribe has in you. If you go paintballing for the first time, you may not trust that you'll be good at hitting the target. Why would you? You've never done it before. But if you're on your own hen night, you trust that the tribe will include you. It doesn't matter if you hit anything or not. It's going to be a laugh. Everyone's going to include you and look after you. But if you're on your team away day and it's your first week in the job and you're a woman in an all-male team, now you're more nervous because is the tribe going to include me? Now my hand-eye coordination may well be some kind of gateway to entry to being in the cool club. It's not about your confidence in whether you're good at this or not. It's about your confidence that the tribe will include you. I know this is true because every single time I have a good gig in a comedy club, someone will come up to me at the bar and go... um, Just want you to know, I don't usually find women funny, but I thought you were hilarious. (laughs) And what they're saying is, I, as a member of this tribe, British comedy fans, Mm -hmm. do not trust women to be funny. You have to prove to me you are an exception to my prejudice. Whereas a white guy in jeans who looks like he might be on any one of the panel shows or the Live at the Apollos comes out and the assumption is, oh, we trust this guy. He looks like a comedian. How do you explain male privilege to somebody who has it? 
I think by reversing it. So there's a chapter in the book called Enemy Lines, where I talk about that men are not the enemy. Structural power imbalance is the enemy. It is true that if I go out onto the high street here and I point at a black man and say to a police officer, he stole my iPhone, the police will assume I am telling the truth and they will go up to him and they will probably treat him quite aggressively and frisk him. But if he turned and said, she stole my iPhone, they would be like, uh, are you sure? Because I'm a white woman. And if they did approach me, they'd say, sorry, has there been some mistake? Is there, is there a chance you've perhaps picked up this man's iPhone by mistake? <laughs> You're not going to go up to a middle class white woman with a nice handbag and be like, have you stolen this black man's phone? Why? It's white privilege. And in that case, they're making assumptions about his financial state and my financial state. They're making assumptions about who commits crimes. So there are different privileges and different yes. powers at play here. Do I have more privilege than a black man? In many, many cases, yes. But does a black woman have more privilege than a black man? Usually, no, because she's oppressed by both white society and also men in her own community in different ways. So there are all sorts of intersections of privilege and marginalisation, oppression and criminalisation that we have to start addressing. And contemporary intersectional feminism does that. And it doesn't just say, boys, bad, girls, good, <laughs> men, lucky, women, oh, so unlucky. And I can tell you how in some cases I'm more privileged than you. But I can also see other cases where you're more privileged than me. So you were, as a teenager, a Jehovah's Witness. Can you tell me what that was like? Oh, it sucked. Um, <laughs> what, yeah. what did you do? What do you mean, in it? Uh, yes, I, I mean, what, what does it mean grids. doing? Okay. Oh, I knocked on a lot okay. of doors, yeah. So I would knock on your door like this. And then you would open it and I would say, Hi, we're in the area today um, just asking people if they ever worry about the future. Is it something that you think about at the moment, you know, perhaps with Brexit, climate change? Are you feeling concerned about what the future may hold? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do worry about the future. Here's what's interesting. A lot of the terrible things that are happening right now were predicted in the Bible 2,000 years ago. Would that surprise you? Yes, that would surprise me. Well, could I show you a scripture <laughs> in Matthew 24 that describes some of the worst excesses of what we're experiencing now? And now, see, you're trapped, Grace. You're trapped. <laughs> now I'm, I'm going thinking, to leave. what can I do? Yeah, I know what you're thinking, <laughs> but there's nowhere to run, Grace. I'm going to put the watchtower into your hand, <laughs> and then I'm going to write down the number of your house, and I'm going to come back again and again and again and again and again until one of us dies. That's how we operated. It was a lot of fun. It wasn't, it wasn't at all. I lived essentially in a small-scale patriarchy because no, in the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses, a woman has never made a decision. The men in Brooklyn, or now they've moved upstate New York now, I think it's eight old men, mm -hmm. make all the global decisions, some of them ridiculous, some of them deeply oppressive, some of them in some cases deadly for people, that they can't take blood transfusions. So how did you get out is getting out the right way of putting it what yeah it's a lot like get out the movie if you saw that <laughs> um it's very scary getting out well I, what i did is i moved and i stopped going because if you stop going where you are the elders will try and come and disfellowship you because they suspect that you're now a an apostate mm -hmm. as is increasingly the case so you might tell other people not to go i didn't want to live my life where all of my decisions were made by men Ever, ever again. And I found that the outside world, I was surprised, wasn't that different, somewhat different, mm. but it wasn't as different as I thought it should be. <laughs> so that's, I think, what, where my feminism came from. So this is, I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses are kind of specifically patriarchal example, but I mean, patriarchy is something that exists in a lot of religions. Do you think it's possible to be a feminist and a believer? 
I mean, I find it very difficult to reconcile the original texts and the way religions have generally marginalised and oppressed women with my feminism. But for some people, their faith is, their faith is part of their feminism and who's, who's to say they're doing it wrongly? I mean, that's... I think it's another sort of patriarchy to say, you can't believe and expect equal rights. No, you can. In the book, you write that most women in the West have a troubled relationship with food. That struck me as being completely true and yet also kind of unbelievable. What can feminism do on this issue? I think we've just got to... We've got to get better as a society and not constantly with every image we see, with all of these subtle messages that come through in the media and in our daily life and our conversations, asserting again and again and again that a woman's main and most important worth is cosmetic. Because men do not get that message. That's not to say men aren't insecure about their looks. Many men will go on a date and feel like, oh, I'm, you know, not as young as I used to be or I feel like I've got a, a tummy that I don't, you know, like or I'm getting bald and they'll feel insecure, of course. But in a work context... If you're going into apply for funding and a man is going into apply for funding, he will either just think, well, my body is a perfectly good example of the genre or just think it's totally irrelevant in a work context. I'm not on a date. I'm not in a, an environment where it would matter. But we're constantly bombarded with the idea that it does. And that's really pernicious. I find it very frustrating that constantly see online articles that say, if you're a funny woman you're probably repelling men. You're not, because men don't find funny women sexy because they find it intimidating. And then there's other articles that will say men find women cleverer than them emasculating or successful women who earn more than their partners. So we're kind of operating with different currencies or that's the way that things have been set up. I just don't want to lose brownie points Mm. for being successful or funny or clever. I mean, that is outrageous. So it's not only that how I look is the most important thing, it becomes the only important thing. Well, that's just absurd. But we're getting that message all the time. And that's why we all, in my opinion, or almost all, have some kind of either serious or low-level weird eating disorder or we're working on mindful eating and we're working on being happy with the weight that we are. We're working on being fat positive or body positive or any of those things. There are ways of sanitising it, but it is essentially a disordered relationship or an uncomfortable relationship with food. It's It's difficult to know what to do, isn't it? I mean, you can't ignore the messages. They're everywhere. I think we have to fight them and we have to we have to fight them with we have to be more mindful. I've tried to stop those discussions about I joke about it in the book that virtually every conversation I had for a couple of years when I met women for brunch or business or anything was like, what are you not eating? Oh, well, I'm not eating carbs. Oh, that's oh, you look great. What are you not eating? I'm not eating sugar. What are you not eating? I'm not eating Mondays and Wednesdays. I try, really try to stop having those conversations. It's true that I may have had a mild version of that conversation at lunch with my publishers. Today? It's possible, but <laughs> right. I okay. really try not to have them. All I said, and I, feel, I don't feel bad about this. I obviously do, I wouldn't be saying it, but all I said was, I just feel like I want to be strong. I want to be fast. I want to be able to run upstairs. I don't want anything now slowing me down. I have too much to you do. Have time to walk upstairs. Yeah, I just, but I know I want to just don't want to be like, <sighs> I need to sit down now. I need ex- two hours extra sleep. I don't want that. Do you think all these things would be happening, all of these feminist things? Could that have been possible even three or four years ago? 
Have things changed? Things have changed so dramatically. Well, I talk about it in the book, the introduction about how in 2015, there was just this feeling in the air. Hillary was running for president. Gloria Steinem outed her, the doctor who had passed away, who had given her, her an abortion illegally, pre-Roe versus Wade, saying he was a hero. I mean, I didn't out him in a negative way. Mm-hmm. I think it was Time magazine who put all Bill Cosby's accusers on the front because there were just so many of them. Something was just shifting mm-hmm. and I felt it and I wanted so much to be part of this wave because I'd been waiting for this. I left the Jehovah's Witnesses and I just came out into an environment that felt very much girl power but not feminism, nothing really shifting or changing. So this is like the 90s we're talking about or early Yeah, I went to uni in 97 and I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, it's going to be, you know, and nobody was talking about feminism. And in fact, there was a sort of genuinely a feeling like if you said anything about feminism, like you were making an excuse for yourself because we had gender parity now. I remember that being said. Kids now, like teenagers, out on these marches. Amica George, uh, her period poverty march, where she was trying to and successfully got money from the government mm-hmm. to put free sanitary napkins in, so on in uh, schools. She was doing it with Scarlett Curtis, Grace Campbell, and they these young teenage and early 20s activists who are out changing the world and the we put it on the podcast and said everyone come to this protest out the front of the house of commons the amount of 15 year olds that were there it was at night in the freezing cold and i was like wow you guys are really inspiring Mm. because that was not happening when i was a student how's the conversation changed the conversation around feminism changed since me too i think it's changed dramatically because we're changing the architecture of society. I mean, com- changing conversation is easy. It's changing the building box of bl- blocks of power that's hard. Previously, the box office of Harvey Weinstein, what the value, the money he could add and the cred he could add, was worth more than the experience of oh, any woman. And that's what everybody agreed to. And Which when you say it now... Sounds, I mean, it sounds insane. But it was what we all agreed to. Mm. Now, Liz and women had no choice but to agree to it, but we all knew it was happening. Louis C.K. is a great example of it, actually, because he's just made a comeback. How do you feel about that? Um, You had a sort of pained look. I feel like if Louis C.K. wants to do comedy again, it should be consensual. That's his whole problem. So I think he should advertise and say, I'm doing a show for people who wish to see me. I don't think he should pop out from behind a curtain to people who have already paid for their seat and go, oh, I'm doing 10 minutes. Because that's that's the same the same headspace of entitlement that he was in. Mm. And then he didn't address it. He didn't say, look, I know some of you may be feeling. He didn't talk about it at all. He just did his set about waitresses tips and racism, which is not his domain. <laughs> He's obsessed with racism, but it's not, it's not his domain. And people say, oh, you can joke about anything, of course. Why can't a white man talk about racism? I'm like, well, he can. It's just very colonial. It's not his country. It's like when straight white cis men make jokes about transgender people. Oh, you can joke about anything. Anything could be funny. It's like, sure, those jokes belong to transgender people. It's like white people going into India and smashing everything up and saying, we can be here if we want. Well, yeah, you can. You've demonstrated that you can. Is it right? No. Is it hurtful? Well, there's a basic power imbalance. Yeah. Yeah. Is it hurtful? Is it damaging? Yes. And so when Louis C.K. comes up to the stage making those jokes and then makes jokes about rape whistles, I'm like, okay, I don't think you have learned anything. 
Do you mind that your audience is predominantly female? Or, I mean, is that a good thing? It's an unapologetically female and non-binary space. And I think women are thirsty. There isn't much for us. I mean, when, when I started the podcast, I felt like a lot of what was for me, directed at me, was like cocktails, shoes, or extremely serious, earnest stuff. And I think that's why my audience is predominantly female, because women are thirsty. But increasingly, we have men. I mean, we have, I reckon in the live shows, 20% of the audience is male, sometimes 30. And increasingly, I have men write to me saying how much they're enjoying the podcast. I mean, I know men who listen. Yeah. That's, and like, well, but most people I know who listen are women. And I've been to, the, to a live show of yours, but and, and I go to other feminist talks and things. And I do feel that it is slightly depressing when you enter a, the room of a feminist talk and it's predominantly women. Because this isn't just for women. It's not just for women, but it is unapologetically a female space. So we'll assume the listeners are female or non-binary. So men have to have that experience that if I watch something like John Oliver, which I absolutely love, John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, mm -hmm. the example will be like a metaphor like, so imagine your girlfriend, it's, that's not to include lesbians, that's a straight mm. male view of the world. So I just flip it in my mind. Our space assumes that the listener is a woman assumes this is about female concerns. And some I have had men say, oh, you need to make it more neutral. And I'm like, well, I listen to Two Dope Queens, which is about, you know, which is a podcast by two mm -hmm. African-American women. It is not for me to write to them and go, could you make this a bit whiter? <laughs> it's my privilege to listen to that. And I will hear things sometimes about white women and white people that are uncomfortable. And that's good because I'm going, oh, God, do I do that? It's not for me to write to them and go, be less black. No, because to listen to that as a black woman would, I'm sure, be incredibly refreshing in the same way that to exactly. listen to the guilty feminist as a woman and for that to be the default pronoun and assumed listener. It's really rare, actually. You just, you know, we get very used to assuming that a protagonist is male, which is a strange thing. I think it's, a, you know, the universal every man is just that. It's a man. So if lots of the Two Dope Queens listeners are black, I don't think they're going to be like, oh, that's a shame. Like, I don't think... Sam Mendes get asked, gets asked, are you depressed that more men watch James Bond? Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like, that's like a huge box. They just not ask that because any time it's a predominantly male audience, it's just seen as a normal or good thing. But an all-female audience or a predominantly female audience seems like, oh, that's sad for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't yeah. think it is. I just, no, it's no, a right. massive celebration. Deborah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute delight. Thank you so much for having me, Grizz. Deborah Francis White's book, The Guilty Feminist, is out now. And Free Women by Lara Feigl and the other books we discussed are also available to buy. We'll post a link to Al's piece about Rufus, fatherhood and the NHS on our Facebook page. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you at facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast or by email everythingelse at ft.com. If you like what you hear, then make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizz and Al, and our music is composed by Fatima.